Hello and welcome back to yet another episode of Talking Terror, brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. This podcast was recorded on August 3rd, 2017 at 2pm. So if there have been any significant events which took place in the time after recording, we were obviously unable to cover them. If you want to find out about upcoming podcasts or anything else we do here at, at Turk, be sure to check out our website, uel.ac.uk slash T-E-R-C. There you can find out information about our MSc in Terrorism and Counterterrorism Studies, our Terrorism and Extremism book series with IB Taurus, and so much more. Also, for the most up-to-date information, be sure to follow us on Twitter, at T-E-R-C-U-E-L, and tweet at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. You have all that to look forward to later on today, but now it's time for today's guest. It's my great pleasure to welcome onto the pod Dr. Rashmi Singh from the Department of International Relations at Puc Menes, Brazil. Before moving to Brazil, she was based at the Handa Center for the Study of Terrorism and Political Violence at St. Andrews University. She holds a PhD in International Relations from the LSC, but has a postgraduate and undergraduate background in history. Rashmi has regional expertise in terrorism in the Middle East and South Asia, with her research primarily focusing on nationalism, culture and religion and political violence and terrorism, especially related to political Islam. While her research focuses mainly upon violent groups engaged in campaigns of national independence, such as Hamas and the LTTE, she also works on transnational terrorist groups such as Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And in 2011, she published her book Hamas and Suicide Terrorism with Routledge. As well as her academic work, Rashmi has worked closely with various governments, international organizations and militaries. Rashmi, thank you for joining us and welcome to today's pod. Thank you so much. No problem. So, um, first of all, I ask all of our guests this, but how did you get, become involved in this area and why did you have an interest in this area of research? I think the answer to that is a little bit rooted in my own personal history and upbringing and a lot of it has to do with what I was doing uh, when the Bamiyan Buddhas were destroyed. Okay. Um, so the first bit is uh, my father has a government background mm-hmm. um, so I essentially grew up in a very high security environment where terrorism was something that we dealt with on a regular basis. So for me terrorism has never been something alien or um, unheard of or unfamiliar. So that was the first. I was always interested in it. Um, But I think the major push to pursue this as a field of study was when I was in fact doing my master's dissertation. And my my master's and my undergraduate are in history. And my master's is in fact in ancient Indian history with a specialization in Buddhist archaeology. Um, So I was essentially, for my dissertation, um, doing research on a site called Sarnath, which is an ancient Indian Buddhist site. And um, Sarnath was excavated and maintained by the Archaeological Survey of India. So I was using the archives. Mm -hmm. And every report, when I would get to Sarnath, would begin with the report on the Bamiyan Buddhas, because the Archaeological Survey of India was also involved with those uh, for excavation, restoration. And I felt completely out of touch because this was the time that the Taliban was in the process of destroying the Buddhas. And I just felt that I was sitting in a library in an archive studying ancient history when it was being destroyed right in front of us. And I felt I had to be much more involved with the contemporary. 
And so it was almost a no-brainer to go straight from that. I knew I wanted to work in terrorism. Uh, I was in India. We don't have terrorism studies per se as a field of study there. So the most logical step was international relations, and that's how I made the jump. And is this background, is that still inspiring you in your work today? Or, uh, like, obviously we can see echoes of what you were talking about and what's happening in Syria in the past mm-hmm. two years. Um, do you see similar processes taking place? There? Absolutely. Well, it's, it, it's influenced me in different ways. Again, um, I've started working on blood antiquities and the Islamic State much more. So I'm, in fact, going back to my archaeology and history background once again, I'm able to sort of read reports and understand them, I hope, I think, a bit better than I, if I had no background in this, this, this field of study. But also, I think it's very interesting because um, it, my background also influenced what I chose to study and focus on for my own doctorate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that also relates to one of the, the books I, I mentioned influenced me. I, I was very, very... Uh, afraid because of my father's um, background of studying South Asia. Okay. Uh, I did not want to go into my doctorate with a biased opinion because I know I have to be very, very careful to remain neutral when it comes to anything that's related to the military and so on and so forth. So I actually chose to change my focus and start working on the Middle East and go into a conflict where I had absolutely no vested interest mm-hmm. and so I could sort of look at it in as unbiased a manner as possible. And... You said that the, this was relating to one of the the, um, the publications that you've recommended that mm-hmm. say that you said has influenced you. Um, before we get onto that specific publication, I want to focus on one publication that you um, that you put forward. It's "What Is History" by E. H. Carr. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is first published back in the nineteen sixties, but. Why do you think, how did that influence you in your research? And do, and how does it still influence you today? In fact, that is the one I was referring to. Oh, is it? <laughs> I thought it was another one. Okay. No, that, that is in fact the one I was referring to. I think, um, I, I remember reading E.H. Carr for the first time uh, when I was doing my master's degree at JNU. And uh, I remember a professor handing me a copy and then uh, I found it in the library because she wanted it back. And I needed to read it a few times because I really didn't understand what was being said. Yeah. Um, but I think I must have read it. And it's, it's not very thick. No. It's, it's a very, very thin volume. And I read it a couple of times. And I think it was the second time or the third time that I was reading it that it was almost as if the penny dropped. And suddenly, what Carr was trying to say, it made not only perfect sense, but it made me understand how research should be done in a way no other book has after that. I suppose um, it also is why and what E.H. Carr says in historical terms is also why I tend to be more drawn towards the constructivists in international relations. So what is your perspective on a particular issue? It's your position in time and space. Um, How do you study it? What do you choose as facts? What do you choose to ignore, whether consciously or unconsciously? I think so it was it was about the, the, the epistemological and ontological influence that this has had on me mm-hmm. overall in terms of how I have done my research from that point onwards is something I cannot actually tell you in words. Oh, it's, wow. just, it's amazing. Uh, again, it's a book that I have... I, re- I used to go back to a lot when I started out 
And I don't think I've actually touched it in 10 years, if not more. But it's something that if somebody asks me, that's the first book that comes to mind. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And it's amazing. Like, I, f- I find it fascinating when uh, contacting researchers like yourself that not all, way, not all of the research that you say, that people say is influential to them, has anything to do with terrorism or counterterrorism. And something like this, um, where you can look into topics such as the bias of a researcher and not asking yourself just what is the history they're talking about but study the historian themselves and see mm-hmm. their point of view. I think this is vitally important in in today's age, um, whether we're talking about terrorism research or whether we're talking about just political figures or researchers Absolutely. in other areas as well. It's a, it's definitely a well worth well worth anyone taking a look at. And th- the next piece that you that you put on your list is one that we were talking before we pressed record on this that so many people have put down mm-hmm. and I'm delighted to see it's um, Walter Reich's uh, book from 1990 the edited volume Origins of Terrorism Psychologies Ideologies Theologies States of Mind and you specifically picked out a couple of chapters from this so mm-hmm. what was it what chapters was it that you picked out from well this? I have to say the two that stood out when you asked me about this were Martha Crenshaw's chapter mm-hmm. and then um, Martin Kramer's chapter which was on Hezbollah um, so if E.H. Carr is the reason I ended up focusing on the Middle East and Hamas in combination with my own personal background, um, but, but, you know, reflecting on my personal background, I think um, the fact that I chose to study terrorism in the manner I did mm-hmm. is entirely due to Martha Crenshaw. Okay. Um, when I first met Martha Crenshaw, I actually told her that I have a love-hate relationship with her (laughs) (laughs) because I love her work, Mm -hmm. but I hate the fact that every time I have a great idea, she's already written about it. I think a lot of people have that similar relationship. (laughs) So I think, um, so I remember this, I I, I would not be um, exaggerating if I said that this was potentially the first book I read that was specifically focused on terrorism. And I remember um, when I read Crenshaw's work, it completely impacted how I decided to view who a terrorist is. Now, again, remember, I'm, even though I was trying to be self-reflective, I was coming from a counter-terrorism security background yeah. in terms of my upbringing. I had never really tried, I, I must admit, to see it from the terrorist perspective. Okay. And I think that's what Crenshaw's chapter did. They are rational actors. They are doing this because in, in this particular situation, it is the best form of com- communication. Uh, it, the, the context matters. All of those things. Re- and the way she said it, most importantly, um, no flowery language. It's almost, some of those uh, paragraphs are almost bullet points. And each one is a thesis in itself. Um, but that's Crenshaw, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's something that when you read that book and when you read those chapters it just makes sense a lot of what's been saying like it's it's not as you said flowery language it's just cutting to the chase and this is Mm -hmm. the way that she believes it is and yeah it can be the basis for a lot of great research and the 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 other chapter there Kramer was no Kramer is very interesting because I was in that stage when I first stumbled upon this book uh, I was in the stage of, oh, should I do Hamas or should I do Hezbollah? Mm-hmm. And Kramer made that decision extremely difficult okay. <laughs> because it was something that was tremendous, the insight that he provided, the approach that he had. 
um, the way he was able to look at the region, the ideologues, the way the different levels of the, the group interacted. It, it was really fascinating. Um, and I must admit, I have not necessarily gone back very much to the Kramer chapter. Mm -hmm. But the Crenshaw chapter is something I've read repeatedly over the years. Mm -hmm. And I, I find what I find interesting is that I learn more every time. There's okay. always something to go back to and say, okay, yes, I can say that bit better. Kramer's chapter, I think, influenced how I actually ended up studying Hamas mm -hmm. uh, in the terms of what is the, the role of the, the ideology, what is the role of the psychology, what is, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think in that sense, it was formative, but it's not something that, that I necessarily went back to as much as the other one. Okay. But, and then, but moving <clears throat> on from that, you, it, it's clear that your, your focus became very regionally, mm -hmm. regionally uh, focused uh, in relation to the Middle East. And you've picked um, the Khalidi book from 2009, Palestinian Identity, the Construction of Modern National Consciousness. And mm -hmm. um, so moving on from, say, Crenshaw's uh, broad general discussion to Cramer's very, uh, more focused regional uh, and group-based discussion. What was this adding on top of all that? Though? I think what by the time I, I got to um, the Khalidi book, there were two things that were happening. First, again, I'm, I'm, I'm referring to, I referred these books because these were the ones that were extremely formative for me when I was doing my doctorate. But I remember when I was doing my doctorate, I got to a point where I just could not seem to find literature that spoke about the Palestinian side of the story. Okay. And I could not understand if it was something that was I, I was doing wrong or I was just unable to find the right, you know, the, the key to the door, literally. Um, and in fact, that's one of the reasons uh, that this, this balance between the two sides is also one of the reasons I ended up doing field work because I said, you know, both sides have such a strong position. Only way to figure this out is to see it yourself. Um, but for me, Khalidi was tremendously important because he was able to give me the real lens into the core reasoning of the conflict from the Palestinian side. Because remember, when I was doing my doctorate, I started from a suicide terrorism perspective. Yeah. So it was very much, okay, what is happening? Tactical, strategic, operational. But I couldn't understand why. And every time I did why, it was, okay, these guys are religious nutters. Mm -hmm. But then the background was, no, they're rational actors because of Crenshaw's work and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and this was still very early. This was early 2000. So the real bulk of the work that we see, you know, the strong pieces of work, Mogadam, for example, uh, they were not really out there yet. So this was literally the key that opened the door. And again, very much like art, was the aha moment for me. So, okay, this makes sense. If this is what is happening then you can use varying levels of violence. Uh, this also explains why the violence keeps escalating, why the violence never goes away, why there are certain patterns to the violence. Um, it also explains that how beyond the, 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 the organizational affiliation, if you really look at what is, is being said by both the organizations and the individual operatives, the narrative more or less rings the same. So in a sense, this the, the fact that Khalidi gave me the key to how the Palestinian imaginary of how they see themselves, how they see themselves as a nation, how they see the struggle, 
um, and the challenges and the setbacks in that, I think really gave me the next push forward in my work. But it also, I think, resonated because it, it was that historical background. Oh, okay, this makes sense, because if it's happening now, obviously it's rooted in something. You can't look at it in the last 10 years. You can't look at it in the last 20 years. The the thing that I think still annoys me most about terrorism studies is that we tend to be ahistorical sometimes. And so that was the key to making sure that we are not. Okay. So you've mentioned there a good bit about your, your doctoral research. What exactly was your doctoral research about? You've hinted to it, but what exactly was it? Um, apologies. Uh, no, no, the, it's, the, it's my fault as the interviewer here. No, um, the, it's, it's actually the book that you mentioned. So mm-hmm. the, the book on Hamas and suicide terrorism was essentially uh, my doctorate converted into a book. Perfect. So um, the, the period that I spent during my um, LSE years, I essentially spent studying and understanding the dynamics of the conflict, but more specifically looking at the hows and the whys and a very multi-level approach, you know, because there, you, you cannot explain any phenomenon like suicide terrorism, and especially the, the voluntariness that went into it within the Palestinian territories, especially during the Second Intifada. Mm-hmm without understanding that dialectic between the organization, between the individual, how society functions uh, as a backdrop to this. Uh, and the similarly, you can't explain why it disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you mentioned as well that you write doing fieldwork. So what, what, was your, what, were, what did your fieldwork involve and what challenges did you face? In doing my fieldwork, I um, essentially, want, the, the, my, my fieldwork had two key foci. For the first one was I wanted to see the area for myself and I wanted to make sure that I could get into the West Bank, Gaza and see what was happening. So I was doing my field work, essentially doing the second intifada. Okay. Um, so the, the period between 2000 and 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, during the process of doing the field work, I was essentially, I started by speaking to academics on both sides, Israelis and Palestinians. Um, and then from there, I went to students, activists, NGOs, and then on the um, Palestinian side of it, I actually started finding people who were in different ways affiliated with Hamas okay. um, or different ways affiliated with any of the other groups that could also make me understand or allow me to understand the internal dynamics of how these groups were operating. So I did a lot of interviews with different groups um, and operatives for that group within mostly the West Bank. Okay, very good. And did it change much when you were bringing it to, to Routledge as a book? Did you have to go and do extra research or did it stay as it was? Actually, I had no extra research added on. What I did was chuck out the theory. Oh, <laughs> Make it more accessible. Make it more accessible. But the theory is important as well as, uh, as, as your writing shows uh, mm-hmm. through, throughout all your publications. Um, and one of the things that you were focusing on uh, within this was the role of, of suicide bombers mm-hmm. um, within Palestine. And this brings us to the last piece of research which you, said, which you have uh, said has influenced you. And it's the Oliver and Steinberg uh, piece, The Road to Martyr Square, A Journey into the World of the Suicide Bomber. Mm-hmm. Um, for many people, it's hard to understand why someone would become involved in uh, in suicide bombing. Um, what was it about this book? What did that tell you about people who were becoming involved or everything, in ge- anything in general? This is a very interesting book. Um, more than half this book is essentially 
a collection, uh, if I'm not mistaken, they're American, mm-hmm. and they spent some a few years in West Bank, Gaza. Um, and in the time that they were there, they essentially collected material. So they took photographs of graffiti, they took photographs of posters, um, they collected videotapings, um, songs, poetry. Um, and so when you actually see the print version of this book, about half of it, if I'm not mistaken, is essentially photographs okay. and um, a compilation of this material. And then a little bit of it is, uh, you know, basically talks about the the reasoning why uh, behind why somebody would actually choose to end their life for a political cause. Um, and for me, this is, I mean, out of all of these, I think this is not really per se a purely academic book. Um, it's also not really IR or terrorism studies. It's more anthropology. Uh, and I thought this this book is really, really interesting when I first saw it, and then again, it's continued to influence my fieldwork in terms of the variety of things I should be paying attention to when I'm on the ground. Um, so when I, while I was there, I would always um, stop in university campi and speak to students and ask them why this particular graffiti. It also, it's something that I've not had the chance to work on. It also got me very interested in street art okay. uh, of conflict and what that signifies. And for example, in the Palestinian scenario, um, the posters that we see for martyrs or the graffiti that we see on the wall, often they has, there's so much symbolism within the art that we seem to miss because we just don't understand the context. And so, in a sense, what that book did was give me the insight of, for, and, and the tools with which I could do my fieldwork in a much more holistic manner. It's fascinating. And anyone listening who's uh, done fieldwork in Palestine or even in Belfast or mm-hmm. Derry or anywhere for that matter, it would resonate with them. It's not just about what individuals say to you. It's not just about the policies put forward. It's not just about the tactics. If you understand the overall context that people are growing up in, that people are living in, and if you understand the symbolism that's there, mm-hmm. it's uh, you can not fully understand it but you can come closer to gaining Get that closer. understanding i think that's a it's a really important message and i that that's i was fascinated to uh, to see that included on your list um but that's other people's research who's in, which has influenced you but your research uh that you've selected it's focusing on these issues in relation to the middle east as you were uh, as your phd was but you've diversified as well as we're going to find out in this discussion but the first one i want to to focus on is that one that's staying uh, with the israeli palestinian conflict it's your 2012 piece mm-hmm. uh, in politics religion and ideology uh, the discourse and practice of heroic resistance in the israeli palestinian conflict the case of hamas could you tell us a bit about this this article what they what the aims of the article were and what the over, what the key findings were for you. Um, this is actually a very for me. This is a this is a very um, close piece because it's something that I I'm not I've not stopped working on, and it's something that constantly evolves. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict is is a lifetime's work, and there are so many aspects to it. Even if I just focus on one group or one small period, there's so many aspects to it. And I think the historian in me, or the archaeologist in me, just doesn't want to stop digging. Mm-hmm. So um, for the discourse and practice of heroic resistance, one of the things that um, I noticed very, very sharply and very clearly when I was studying the, the conflict was 
there are these very clear patterns of violence. That means the conflict goes through passive and active phases. Uh, phases when there's a lot of violence, phases where there's almost no violence. Now, when we read about this in the literature, you know, the, the logical strategic explanation or the, the, the rational explanation for this is, well, there's no resistance in this time because uh, the leadership has been killed off or counterterrorism measures are being effective. But that does not explain then the longevity of the conflict. So there's obviously, for me, that's the, that was the starting point. What else is going on? What are, what are the other forms that resistance can take? And from there, I, I actually realized that um, as with the active and passive cycles, there are very clear signifiers and indicators that different groups in the, the territories um, use and manipulate in order to not only sustain the, the, the resistance, but also to sort of embed themselves politically, gain legitimacy within the society, per se. And so this is how I started trying to probe into it. Now, there's a lot of work when, if you're looking at Palestinian literature, on some of the, the ideas um, that I've, I've pulled on here. So um, I essentially said, what are the, the signifiers of um, passive resistance? Mm -hmm. And those were key ideas like the felaha, which is the peasant, mm -hmm. um, the idea of sumud, which is steadfastness, which is literally the idea of survival, uh, the idea of sabr or patience. And if you look at the Palestinian conflict, you know, all of those are so important. The, the peasant for that connection to the land, um, the olive trees that are always uh, called upon as, as uh, important signifiers of Palestinianness, um, the cacti. But then on the flip side, um, they were very clear, active signifiers as well. And these included things like the shaheed, so the martyr. Um, these included uh, words and concepts like uh, the shabab, which is the, the youth, which are the active youth uh, who are fighting in the resistance. Murabitun, who are the settlers in the forefront who are involved in a fight, in a, in a, in a sacred fight for uh, preserving the nation. Uh, they are at the forefront uh, against the enemy. And what I found interesting when I started looking at this is how Hamas actually uses these words in its own literature, okay. um, starting from the first intifada, and how it has managed to manipulate these ideas and concepts and signifiers to become something else. Um, so it constantly, for example, in its leaflets from the first intifada, refers to um, the patient people, Okay. Are the patient, steadfast, murabitun. So in a sense, what it does is it, it encompasses all Palestinians within the struggle. But it also very clearly re-Islamizes a lot of these concepts. Now, a lot of these concepts are rooted in Islamic history, but they have a fairly secular usage, not only in Palestine, but across uh, South Asia, across uh, the Middle East. But what Hamas does is it flips how it's used, it changes, it manipulates. Uh, and the most obvious example for me was the, the word for the suicide bomber that was used in the second intifada, which, which is ishtahadiyah. Uh, or ishtahadi, and the, the, the martyrdom became ishtahadiyya. And it was for me very interesting to see how this concept had changed from the fidayin in the 1960s, which was just a guerrilla, very left-wing or secular, Fatah-related or PFLP-related, 
moved in towards um, the, the 1980s and the first intifada and started slowly moving towards the mujahideen. So uh, a fighter in the path of God, a fighter waging a jihad. And Shaheed remained in the background, you know, for both of these, it was the, it was what pinned it to the concept of self-sacrifice. Uh, but Shaheed has a sort of passive element to it because it means to witness. Mm -hmm. And so by the time you get to the second intifada, Hamas essentially takes this and says, okay, let's, let's maneuver this. And so Ishtahadiyah becomes the active martyr, the suicide bomber, killing himself or herself in an active, violent jihad. Mm -hmm. But the Shaheed is the innocent bystander who is witnessing and unable to do anything in this conflict. And so for me, what was really, really interesting was this mechanism by which these concepts were pulled in, manipulated by Hamas and projected as part and parcel of this very clearly existential heroic resistance that is imperative for the Palestinian struggle to go forward. And what effect did you see that this adoption and manipulation and claiming of these symbols and these phrases what, what effect did this have externally from the group within mm -hmm. uh, Palestine as a whole? It's really interesting that you're saying this because the fact that the group was able to manipulate this, it, it, the group doesn't stand alone from society. No. Um, what, what has been seen within the Palestinian territories has been a clear shift or a clear re-Islamization. It's becoming more conservative than it was in the 1990s and the 1980s and the 1960s. Perhaps the best example for this, um, if you're looking at um, sort of symbols of uh, practice and faith, was potentially the uh, 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 one of my interviewees told me in approximately 2005 now that his... Um, his grandmother used to use the hijab. His mother didn't did not, and her his sister has chosen to. Okay. So it's about it's it, the re-Islamization is not only in terms of what's happening, but it's also the society willing to demonstrate um, their faith and their mechanism of um, practicing, and then uh, sort of linking this practice if you are politically involved to the resistance. Okay. And so, in a sense. The, what Hamas essentially, or what I tried to do in this article, is essentially reflect how Hamas tapped into a trend and was able to ride the wave, but do it very, very strategically for its own purposes. Mm. Because it's not Hamas that created this. This is, this, is a, this is a wave that has been, that emerged in the Middle East in the 1960s and the 1970s with political Islam. And that's what we've been seeing is the is this consolidation of political Islam as the challenge to the status quo when secular resistance has failed, when left-wing ideas and ideologies have failed and, and were really um, damaged by the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, so in a sense, it's just one more part of the wave. Okay. And actually, towards the end of your article, you, you finish up by saying Hamas are now being challenged by more extremist groups mm -hmm. within Gaza, looking to ideologically undermine it. So with, with that taking place for Hamas, it seems that, that now you're saying that there are other more, uh, more extreme groups mm -hmm. trying to 
trying to take that away from a mass and claim that from them for Absolutely. What's happened? This was published in 2012. What's happened since then? Is that still taking place? That there has certainly even Hamas, which we thought was becoming much more moderate, is um, sort of moving much more right wing once again, uh, because the I mean the the standard logic is once you come into government, um, although you might not necessarily lose. Um, your violent toolkit, the, the tendency is that you tend to moderate the way you behave. Um, that's something that we've not seen uh, with Hamas, and in fact we're seeing a reversion. Now some of this has to do with the state of the national struggle, the fact that there's been a complete dissolution um, in terms of the West Bank and Gaza, there's been an isolation of Hamas in Gaza, it's a humanitarian crisis of remarkable proportions and the world is continuing to ignore. Um, so all of this, I think, has factored into not only Hamas becoming more extreme, but also other groups sort of, you know, saying, okay, if this didn't work, what else? What else do we do? Um, and it's the same thing I say about suicide bombings and suicide terrorism. The last time we really saw the big push was 2006. That's the last time we saw the, the tactic used the way um, it was, for example, during the Second Intifada, doesn't mean it's gone away. It doesn't mean that other, quote-unquote, worse forms of violence will not be used. What there is, however, happening, and that's sort of the saving grace, is that there is internal competition. So Hamas is tremendously jealous of its position, its... Um, control over other groups, and so it has had a very clear um, no-tolerance or zero-tolerance stance towards any other group that would challenge it, and that includes more extremist groups. Mm -hmm. It is particularly suspicious of any group that is Salafist in leaning, primarily because it sees Al-Qaeda and now the Islamic State as a key competitor, and it, it does not want any influence of these groups inside the territories, um, not only for what it would mean for the group itself, but also what it would mean in terms of world focus and counterterrorism. Mm -hmm. So for all of these reasons, I think what we are seeing is a, a definite move towards the right, um, especially in spaces like Gaza. Okay. Um, in the West Bank, the situation is slightly different, but... Um, the West Bank is also in a much worse state in many ways because the the loss of land uh, ha is progressive and it it doesn't seem to be coming to an end. It, it's just getting worse. Uh, there's very few spaces now that you can identify as contiguous Arab territory. Um, and so, in a sense, the resistance is not only fragmented, it's also a little bit harder in the West Bank. So. At least in the West Bank, what we are seeing is a reversion to what I was saying in the article of sumud and sabr. It's survival and steadfastness right now. Patience. This is, it's a, it's a fascinating topic and it's, it's one that we could have a whole series of podcasts on just focusing purely on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But you were talking there um, about the perception of groups like ISIS, mm -hmm. about Al-Qaeda, um, from the Hamas perspective. And that leads us on to uh, your next piece, uh, a preliminary, preliminary typology, mapping pathways of learning and innovation 
by modern jihadist groups uh, published in Studies in Conflict and Terrorism in a, in a really interesting special issue by Andrew Mumford. I say it's really interesting because I have a piece in it as well. Um, but it's, it, it's a nice link uh, to show that while you started off looking at Hamas and Hezbollah and groups like that, that that's now expanded to look at these these modern day more uh, more internationally focused uh, jihadist groups. Um, and you could you give us an overview of what this uh, preliminary preliminary typology is, um, and why is it important to look at learning and innovation within these groups? Okay, um, I think the first I, I, I'd start with your second question. Okay. Um, if we are going to crack the problem of terrorism in any sustainable long-term manner, we have to figure out not only what makes these groups and these individuals stick. Now, I'm not suggesting a President Bush, we are going to f get rid of all terrorism everywhere, yeah. but certainly in terms of management, uh, learn what makes them tick, but also in terms of disruption, the challenges come when they make the jump, when the groups make the jump. Uh, tactical innovation, strategic innovation, organizational innovation. Um, and so whether these are violent innovations or nonviolent innovations, because that's something I very strongly believe in, that we need to start looking much more, especially if you're talking Al-Qaeda and Islamic State and uh, jihad on the Internet, then we, start, we need to start looking at nonviolent innovation. Um, the, the, the real challenges come when these groups are able to make these jumps because they are strategic surprises for us how we can counter them, how effectively we can respond, how quickly we can respond, is entirely dependent on us staying a step ahead. Mm -hmm. So that is why we need to understand the multiple pathways of learning that can exist uh, within and between terrorist organizations. Now, this is a piece that works only on jihadist terrorism because that's something that I work on quite a lot. Mm -hmm. But it's certainly not something that can be just limited to jihadist terrorism because it's something that we can apply much more broadly. But this is a project that is ongoing. It's still in its very early stages. It also links into uh, one of the other concerns I have about the state of terrorism studies, which we, I'm sure we'll discuss as we move forward, and that is how far are we along in terms of our conceptual and theoretical building? knowledge building, um, how far are we in theory building, um, because that, that changes where our discipline is. Mm. And so this is essentially an attempt to contribute to that. It is an attempt to actually speak to some sort of conceptual understanding of the processes of learning and innovation. Um, in terms of what the typology itself is, it's, it's a very, very preliminary typology. It's a, literally a foray into understanding this. Um, but it draws upon not only my work on Hamas, but my previous work on uh, Islamist proxies and um, Islamist terrorism in the subcontinent. It also draws upon my previous work on Al-Qaeda and the global war on terror, because I was the principal investigator on a project um, that was funded by START called the Eye of the Beholder. And so it, in a sense, what I started when I was working on this article, 
the reason I was working on it was because there are so many links between all of these seemingly disparate geographically, time-wise, capability-wise groups. But there, there is a lot more going on there. So the topology basically starts with trying to understand how do groups that are based in a single domestic setting learn and from each other and therefore innovate. The second bit is how do groups um, that are across national boundaries um, learn and innovate. The third step in that typology or the third categorization is essentially how do groups um, that are essentially part of the transnational jihadist movement, which is a euphemism for Al-Qaeda mm-hmm. uh, and now the Islamic State. So essentially, if we're looking at Al-Qaeda core and its key affiliates, so those groups that have declared bayat, how do these groups in that that circle over there, that, that core, then interact, innovate, and learn with other domestic groups? And then finally, the last step is intra-group learning. So how does learning and innovation happen between uh, the transnational jihadist movement? So if we're looking at this, we're looking at Al-Qaeda core, we're looking at its affiliates, so those that have declared bayat. Um, I include Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and therefore, because of that historical link, the Islamic State into that. Um, And then also the associates. So how does this actually work? So this is essentially the four categories that I use. And I... I found this to be very, very interesting, but also enlightening for my own work in terms of understanding the linkages between these. And when you're talking about learning and innovation across mm-hmm. these four different um, strata, does this necessitate direct contact in order to learn and innovate, or can there be learning and innovation without direct contact between a, a group or an individual and who they're learning from? There are different ways of learning and innovating. And and in fact, there is other work on this out there, not just what I have in there. Um, Craig and Atoll actually talk about how um, there are multiple ways you can have um, interaction. So it can be face-to-face, so it's physical. It can be online. Um, It can be vicarious learning, although for um, most uh, scholars who look at vicarious learning don't believe you can actually transfer much knowledge uh, through vicarious learning. I disagree because I think especially when it comes to nonviolent innovation, um, the use, the strategic use of social services, for example, or in the case of the Islamic State, if we look at, for instance, their use of blood antiquities from Syria, um, you don't. Ha- I think that kind of nonviolent innovation you can transfer quite a lot of information without necessarily um, thinking that it cannot happen through vicarious learning. Um, but, you know, th- there's uh, you can have a transfer of physical technology, uh, so sharing of weapons, sharing of manpower. Um, so there's multiple ways. You don't necessarily have to sit face-to-face. Um, so And, and it, it completely, it's dynamic. For each one of these levels, it's dynamic. Um, in addition, it doesn't have to happen in one direction. It can happen in in a bi-directional way. It can happen in multi-directional ways. Um, it can be sporadic. It, it can be continuous, ongoing for a short while, a long while, and stop for various other reasons. So it really depends on the context. So one of the things that this article does try to do is it, it does 
highlight these four levels, um, but then it uses very, very clear empirical examples to illustrate how this actually works in real life. And so what kind of examples are these? Okay, uh, in terms of... Um, let's just take the first one, uh, and then I'll give you an example from the last one. So, yeah. intergroup learning within a single domestic setting. I actually used the case of suicide terrorism in the Palestinian territory, so that makes it easier because we've already had a discussion about this. Now, um, of course, there are criteria. So if you have groups learning from each other or uh, innovating within a single setting, then there are challenges and there are advantages. So at the advantages, you don't have to cross a national border. It's easier to do face-to-face -face meetings. Um, but then the challenges are that you are essentially competing for the same set of recruits. You're competing for the same public opinion. Um, so there, in a sense, the groups have to balance these uh, challenges and constraints. But what we see, for instance, is um, suicide attacks appear in the Israeli-Palestinian context in 1993. And the first group to use it is Hamas. And in fact, uh, a lot of scholars argue that the technology and the know-how came from this because there was a series of deportees, about 400-odd deportees, that were sent out into southern Lebanon and that's where they potentially came into contact with Hezbollah and then brought that technology back with them with the result that there was the first bombing in 1993. And what Hamas did was it used these bombings in the 1990s, which is essentially the Oslo period, to work for various, reasons, for various purposes. So it, it spoiled negotiations in order to keep a revolutionary setting because why Hamas emerged in the first intifada, it was a matter of survival. The, the revolution and the, the setting it provided was a matter of organizational survival. But it also used um, this very, very strategically to gain public support. As, um, you know, um, Avram Shal uh, Michal, Avram Shela, as well as Mia Broom have talked about outbidding mm -hmm. and public support. Um, so these, these were, uh, this was very, very clearly used by Hamas in this 1990 period. The real spike in suicide attacks happens in the Second Intifada, so 2000, 2005, um, And what we see here is that it was able to use the, uh, the attacks so effectively that it garnered more and more public support as... Um, the Fatah and the Palestinian Authority and the rest of them lost it, pushing these other secular groups into actually adopting the tactic. Okay. So in a sense, it was a combination of um, vicarious learning, technological transfer to some extent, because there are cells and individuals that overlapped and interacted at certain points. And so what we saw is this push coming in as a result of that. The same way... Um, Oh, a very good example of non-violent uh, learning is the one that uh, I've mentioned previously, which is uh, with regards to blood antiquities. Mm -hmm. Now, if we look at the way antiquities have been used, they have a very long history of being used in, in conflict. But within this particular setting, um, within the sort of transnational jihadist movement, the first indication of antiquities being used was by the Taliban. Now, the Taliban never dealt with antiquities themselves. What they did was um, certain groups within the Taliban, like the Haqqani network, 
um, essentially levied tax on any businessman dealing with or any people involved with transporting antiquities. Um, most of the uh, excavation and the looting that happens in Afghanistan is either subsistence excavation and looting because it's a conflict zone and so the locals essentially find what they can and then sell it to the businessmen. Um, and so initially it started like that. And the, the route out is via Pakistan. So they would essentially um, track them and ask them to pay tax along that route. Over time, the Taliban started getting much more closely involved. Again, they did not deal with these antiquities, but they started raiding peasant homes to start extracting them and things like that. Now, by the time you get into Syria, this is a completely different scenario. We've seen an evolution in this when it comes to Al-Qaeda in Iraq and Zarqawi, um, where there was a looting of the Iraqi museums. The American military has a very interesting set of documents and um, basically discussing this. But this evolves and is formalized fully by the Islamic State. So in the Islamic State, or you know, at, at that point it was not declared as the Islamic State, when it, it actually enters the conflict in Syria, there was already a booming trade in antiquities and artifacts. Um, and everybody was involved, all the militaries, all the militants, um, the Free Syrian Army, all of them were involved in it. So what the Islamic State essentially did was it learned from how the Taliban had done this and um, how Zarqawi's group had done this. And it first started taxing and making sure that anything in the area that it controlled would then be taxed. However, what they did was they, having learned from the fact that this was good, but you know they could find other ways to innovate and get better financial um, remunerations. Over time, they started um, essentially imposing penalties if tax was not paid. Then they started um, essentially um, locating their own excavators, buying the machinery, to the point where they then set up an entire department within the Islamic State that did nothing but deal with uh, the looting of the, the archaeological sites across Syria. And this, this discussion of antiquities, actually, it goes back to, your, to the start of your, your career Absolutely. as a historian, <laughs> as an archaeologist. Um, and it, that started off with, with you looking at, uh, you learning about your local history uh, within India. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, it brings us back to the final piece that you've you've uh, put forward for today, and it's it's a forthcoming piece. It's in Michael Boyle's uh, upcoming edited volume. It's called, uh, and your chapter is uh, counterterrorism in India: an ad hoc response to an enduring and variable threat. Mm -hmm. Now we don't hear so much about Indian terrorism, like when obviously we've got the Mumbai attacks happening. Mm -hmm. It's headline news. It's right up there, but. Reading your chapter, it reminds you that the history of terrorism in India is vast. And mm -hmm. um, I was, I was not surprised, but it sort of it really emphasised it to me when you when you said that uh, India was ranked fourth in two thousand and fifteen in relation to the number of mm -hmm. uh, terrorist attacks that took place. We tend to uh, forget that. Yeah, it's uh, like the the and that was ahead of Syria. That mm -hmm. was um, like the focus is on. Over here, obviously, we're recording in the in the UK. Our focus here is on 
Western Europe. It's on. Um, it's it's on Syria. It's um, it's on lone actor terrorism, homegrown terrorism, and so on. Um, but we need to we need to acknowledge the the role and the history that that India has in relation to terrorism and in relation to counterterrorism. Um, so what with with that in mind, like what kind of uh, terrorism has India faced in its past? So I know it, it well. feels like we're, yeah, I know. <laughs> I like I, I, asking that question and having this in front of me. I like you've you could obviously talk about the Kashmiri example, the the northeast. You could talk about Punjab. You could talk about the Naxalites. You could talk now about the Islamists. Right? Mm-hmm. With the focus of our our discussion uh, so far has been on Islamists. Let's continue that on. What's the role of the Islamist uh, threat within India at the moment? And think, what's the history behind it? I think um, if, if you're going to look at just Islamist terrorism, then within India there are two very distinct types mm-hmm. of Islamist terrorism. And this goes back to the heart of the chapter that you are actually referring to, because the problem with India is that it's a very complex amalgamation of insurgency and terrorism. Mm-hmm. So... Um, most of the terrorism in within India, or that India faces, is insurgency related. They are insurgencies that are resorting to terrorist tactics. They are, however, also pure terrorist groups. So what we are talking about when we talk about Islamist terrorism is both the hybrid between insurgency and terrorism, as well as the pure Islamist terrorism. Now, in terms of the hybrid, the example is, of course, Jammu and Kashmir. Now, the conflict in Jammu and Kashmir started in the late 1980s, and when it started, it began as an insurgency that was essentially local in its nature, in its character. Um, and this was um, essentially the JKLF, which uh, which started as um, the Jammu Kashmir Liberation Front, which, which wanted an independent state of Kashmir. Um, but that was very, very quickly hijacked, first by local groups that were pro-Pakistani, mm. and therefore instead of independence, they wanted to secede, but then be united with the Pakistani state. And then very quickly after that, um, the, the introduction of proxies, militant proxies, so Lashkar-e Tayyaba, Jashe Muhammad, um, that were coming in from the Pakistani state. So what happened essentially was this became a very complex amalgam of local insurgency and local insurgent groups that had varying different demands and had tremendous number of splinters. And even within the first four or five years of the insurgency, the local groups were completely splintered. And the JKLF, the majority um, splintered, and then the core essentially declared peace within four years of the insurgency. But the it then became a, a conflict, an insurgency that was given speed and given that momentum essentially by the proxies. So that is, in a sense, the first threat that... India faces. Now, that threat has also mutated. So it's not only mutated in terms of, okay, it's gone from local Islamist groups that were involved in insurgency using terrorism to proxies coming in from Pakistan using terrorism. But also because of what happened with the global war on terror and Operation Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan, with the exfiltration of Al-Qaeda 
cadres into Pakistan, especially Khabar Pakhtunwa, and then eventually Punjab, and that area, uh, Karachi, what we actually saw was how um, the Islamist proxies in Pakistan came into very close contact with Al-Qaeda cadres in a way they had not necessarily done previously, despite having occasionally shared training camps and things across Khabar Pakhtunwa and in parts of Afghanistan. And the result has been, at least for some of these groups, even if they were involved in a global jihad, for example, lashkar e Tayyiba is an Islamist proxy, uh, one of Pakistan's favorite proxies. And, you know, despite the fact that the state of Pakistan has faced tremendous security uh, problems with its own proxies recently, lashkar e Tayyiba is one that has not yet attacked the state. Um, and this is very interesting because what we actually saw was Although cadres of the Lashkar were involved in global jihad, their first commitment was to the jihad in Kashmir. With the introduction of, or the cross-pollination in terms of the ideology with Al-Qaeda, what we are seeing now is not only has their modus operandi within India changed, as we saw in the case of Mumbai, and I'll talk about that in a second, Mm -hmm. but also where they are operating within India has changed, again, as with the case of Mumbai. So what does Mumbai show us? Because Mumbai is just one. It's the tip of the iceberg. Um, The the geographical range of these Islamist proxies that were previously only limited to Jammu Kashmir has expanded exponentially across, especially North India. It's now sort of we can see fingers into the south as well but also what is very interesting is the shift in target selection it was the first time for example lashkar taiba when the mumbai attacks in 2008 deliberately targeted foreigners deliberately targeted jewish people Uh, you have to remember it was not only the hotel that was attacked there was a synagogue there was a jewish center it was not a synagogue apologies um now so that has changed. So uh, target selection has changed. Also, um, operational cap- cap- capability, but also tactic has changed. So lashkar e Tayyaba, for instance, has been operating in India since the 1990s. Uh, it has had a frontal assault strategy. What we saw in Mumbai, for in- instance, was almost a blueprint al-Qaeda attack, simultaneous attacks, soft targets, uh, peripheral chaos, um, the the sort of digging in until the last. So it was very, very reflective of the kind of exchanges that were happening with al-Qaeda. As you can see, as I'm talking, this also links into the innovation article. Yeah, it does. Um, it does. So in a sense, this is the first key Islamist threat in India. The second is the pure Islamist threat that is not insurgency related. Because in a sense, this all the proxy and everything came in, even though, though it's pure terrorism, came in via the insurgency. The pure Islamist threat is twofold. One is homegrown. So you have we have groups like the Indian Mujahideen or Simi, and they are they have been internal developments, including um, the election and the and to, unfortunately, to some extent, the policies followed by the Bharatiya Janta Party, which is our current uh, party in power, but, but also um, the fact that previous governments, such as the Congress Party, has had a very, very ad hoc and inconsistent response to the threat that these groups 
represented. So none of the, the, the governments are, um, can, can get out of the scot-free, to be honest. Um, but in addition to that, we have the extra layer of transnational terrorism. So Al-Qaeda, for example, has now got a branch in India. Um, the idea of this is essentially India is seen as part of the great conspiracy against Islam because it is about, um, obviously, the Western crusaders, but the, the Jewish um, in, in Israel. And of the, India then represents the lost lands and essentially the, um, the domination of what was previously Islamic territory by the Hindus. So in that sense, it is a battlefront. It is, has been declared repeatedly and referred to repeatedly in the literature, whether by Zawahiri or any of the other ideologues as well, um, Abu Qatada and so on, as a, a, a key um, battlefront. But we are also now beginning to see that the Islamic State may be making inroads into India. So there has been some evidence of foreign fighter activity with Indians going to Syria. But there has also been evidence of arrests made within India uh, regarding people who, are, who have evidently been radicalized online and are now sort of moving towards um, the Islamic State or trying to um, conduct activity in the name of the Islamic State, so local activity in the name of Islamic State. So in a sense, what you see is the Islamist threat is, again, it's, it's quite varied. As with most terrorisms in India, the answer is not easy or straightforward. Yeah. But um, with that history in mind, mm -hmm. like you've got this, this history of Islamist proxies, you've got a history of insurgencies, you've got a history of... Uh, pure terrorism as well. Mm -hmm. What? How has the Indian uh, government and the Indian um, security apparatus reacted to this new threat of foreign fighters going from India mm -hmm. uh, to Syria and elsewhere? Now, this is again, uh, this is something that I've, I'm dealing with um, because I have indeed gone back to working on India after a short break. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially what this chapter argues. Um, that is, the problem with the Indian response is essentially reflective of the mix-up between insurgency and terrorism. So because the lines between insurgency and terrorism are blurred in practice, in, real, in reality, on the ground, it seems that the government's counter-terrorism and counter-insurgency also seems to be just as muddled. Mm. Now, the standard approach that the Indian government has is that of a hearts and mind approach, which makes no sense when we are dealing with counterterrorism. Um, but even when it's dealing, when, even when it refers to terrorism, it starts with a hearts and mind approach. This is generally with relation to hybrid, I should add. When it deals with pure terrorism, it has no problems with um, ditching the hearts and mind and going straight for the kinetic. But even in where, where it discusses um, for insurgencies that use terrorism, where it begins with the hearts and minds, uh, population-centric argument, it tends in practice to rely upon a lethal kinetic response. Similarly, when it's dealing with counter-insurgency, uh, counter it agrees that counter-insurgency is a political problem, not a military problem. And its language is again hearts and mind. 
but again its response is enemy centric it tends to work towards coercion it tends to work towards um, saturation of forces in order to suffocate the enemy and so essentially in both counterterrorism and coin counterinsurgency it it ends up floundering because it's not really clear in terms of where it's going now there are various reasons for this and i go into this in quite some detail in the article and they range from what is called selective poverty where india is one of the few countries that despite the level of threats does not really invest as much as it can and indeed one can argue as it should into its um, security national security um, we can point towards uh, political expediency we can point towards uh, endemic corruption we can also point towards the fact that it's a federal state. So that means the police force in every state is in fact responsible for counterterrorism and intelligence in the state, which makes it very difficult to coordinate with the center. And that also means that when we have organizations that are um, supposed to be oversight organizations, often based at the center, um, then often states feel quite threatened in terms of their own space uh, being encroached upon. And so this again means your counter-terrorism or indeed counter-insurgency efforts are completely siloed. That makes crossovers very, very difficult. Uh, knowledge sharing, uh, knowledge amalgamation, uh, information amalgamation, challenging analysis, extremely difficult. So these are key problems. Legislation. India's legal system, and especially when it comes to counter-terrorism and counter-insurgency, is essentially mired in its colonial past. So its, its core um, legislation almost harks back to the legislation that the East India Company used against seditionists, which means things like um, preventative detention is still okay. And every time we have a new law that is passed, whether we talk about the TAAA or the TADA law or the POTA law, each one of these has been repealed or has expired. Each one of these has been accused of human rights violations. Um, and so, and, and India has not had the ability yet, again, partially due to the resources and the lack of resources and funding, but also due to political will, to incorporate and, and formulate some sort of a much more robust legal response. Um, even after the last, um, the, the, the POTA was, was um, taken away, it was repealed in, I do believe it was 2004, um, the core um, provisions of the, the act, as well as the definitions of terrorism, were essentially incorporated into the UPA Act, which is what is in place right now. It's an old act. It deals with um, um, essentially preventing unlawful activity, but um, it's, it's not able to in innovate fast enough to deal with the problem. So all of this mixed together, and then you throw in the agencies. The number of agencies that are involved in India dealing with counterterrorism and counterinsurgency are enormous. Mm. So when you put all of this together, these are some of the reasons that what the Indian state response is, is diluted, it's ad hoc, it's essentially reactive. There are no long-term policies or programs like de-radicalization, 
reintegration, none of, you know. Um, so there are serious gaps here. Mm -hmm. So far, we've not had a problem that has not been able to be dealt with because of these shortcomings. And this is because most of the key groups that were a threat were in the periphery. However, the two contemporary threats that India has that are not so easy to deal with are the Maoists, which are essentially in a red corridor right down from the north to the south and are now spreading eastward, <laughs> but also the Islamist threat. Because even if we can argue that with the Maoists, which is an insurgency, we can um, have the Indian government revert to its traditional policy of coercion or uh, co-option, you can't do that with a ideologically driven group like those who would be part of Al Qaeda or the Islamic State. It's uh, it just goes to show that your background in history doesn't just tell you about history; it t gives you an understanding of the modern day structures and Absolutely. the modern day laws within um, within Indian politics and Indian security. And this whole issue about knowledge there sharing—it's something that we hear across states mm -hmm. uh, like the, the key example that people gave was uh, post 9-11 United States mm -hmm. and you didn't have half as many agencies working on it there in the states but it's still a problem this knowledge sharing uh, I realize that we've we've nearly uh, run out of time here but I want to get one last question in um, before we have to go you've mentioned it a bit at the beginning and you you brought it in throughout um, throughout your discussions about the, the current state of terrorism research. Mm -hmm. What do you think of, what do you think are the, the, is the current state of terrorism research and where do you see it going uh, in the next few years and where do you think it should go? I think uh, we've done well, but we have a long way to go. Um, I think there's still quite a lot of literature out there that needs to be much more grounded in empirical data, uh, first-hand fieldwork, as well as theoretical conceptualization. And I think for, my, for me, the, these two, uh, fieldwork and theoretical conceptualization, are personal crusades. Um, for my, not only my own work, but where I would like to see terrorism studies go and where I think terrorism studies is still lacking quite, quite sorely. <clears throat> so, I think um, if we are going to go forward as a discipline, we really have to do some serious theory building now. Um, and that means we need to be able to, very much like international relations or history, at least outline what we are dealing with, what are going to be our core concepts, what are, how are we going to characterize certain things, even if there's no general agreement. Now, when we start terrorism studies, uh, anybody starts in doing this discipline, we, we bore them to death with the, the definition of terrorism. I don't think any student of terrorism study uh, has not gone through at least one lecture on yeah. that. Um, and although it sounds idiotic, you know, I think there is merit in saying, okay, let's let's show you what where we are, but let's move forward. It's it's done. It's dusted. Let's try to come to some sort of a agreement on three definitions, ten definitions, 
uh, or if not a pure definition, then at least what are the criteria? Okay, so I'm going to only look at state terrorism and leave the non-state out. I'm going to include the civilians. Have some sort of a matrix and go forward. And I think we are already doing that. And this is a very, very primitive example because it's the one that comes to mind. But th this is something that we can do consistently across the board, um, whether it is when we are looking at uh, innovation or research, when it is looking at things like in the role of international law and where we can go with that, uh, whether it is looking at the ways we can study radicalization. What are the core concepts that we're doing? I think those need to be much more clearly delineated and developed a bit more. Um, and I think we are on a good path, but we need more manpower. <laughs> Very good. Well, I think we'll leave it there for that. We've moved from archaeology to, uh, to the Middle East, uh, to India, and then with the definition of terrorism and concepts to, <laughs> to finish up. Rashmi, I'd like to thank you so much for, thank you so much for, for having being me. here. Um, it's, it's been a fascinating talk. I could, uh, I could continue this conversation for a long time yet, but I would urge anyone who's, who wants to read more about Rashmi's research to go onto our website. There's all the research that we talked about today. Is, uh, there are links to it there. Uh, so that's uel.ac.uk slash T-E-R-C. Uh, I'd like to thank Rashmi again for being here. I'd like to thank uh, Jamie Murray, as always, for editing today's podcast. And uh, be sure to check out our Twitter feed at T-E-R-C-U-E-L uh, to find out who our next guests are going to be and any more up, any other news that we have from the centre. Okay, I'll see you all next week. Hope that you enjoyed today's chat with Rashmi. Be sure to check out next week's episode, where I'll be talking to Professor Max Taylor about his research on the psychology of terrorism and the research that has influenced his career and his way of thinking about terrorism and terrorist actors.